0: You've probably heard it before. Drug addiction is a choice. Those with substance use disorder should be in jail. We shouldn't even consider decriminalization or harm reduction. These are just some of the common notions that are floated by everyday Americans when it comes to addiction. But what if these beliefs are actually doing more harm than good? This is the third and final episode of Illegal Tender Season 3. I'm Adriana Belmonte.
1: What's scary about fentanyl is that it's a drug most people don't want.
0: Ben is a journalist and the author of Fentanyl, Inc.,
1: so when it comes to drugs that are killing people like heroin and cocaine, the users tend to want this but nowadays you know young people who are buying drugs off the internet you know street level users, um, people of all ages and demographics are susceptible to fentanyl because they think they're getting other drugs. And the way that the singer Prince died was that he thought he was taking a legitimate pharmaceutical pill, an opioid, for pain, but it was actually cut with fentanyl. That's the same with Tom Petty and the rapper Mac Miller. And so increasingly, we're finding fentanyl being cut into these black market, you know, be it Oxycontin, uh, Valium, or excuse me, Vicodin, Percocet. And so these pills look exactly like the real thing.
0: As a medical toxicologist, Ryan Marino sees this in his everyday work. When was it that you saw fentanyl was becoming a major issue?
2: Probably around like 2015 or so, it started showing up more and more. um, And kind of by, I think, around 2017, um, where where I was at the time in Western Pennsylvania, uh, it was pretty much all fentanyl in uh, what was sold as like street heroin. Um, And kind of the other synthetics have replaced what was previously heroin being sold on the street, um, but primarily fentanyl.
0: I'm curious, you know, you um, I often see a lot of times just in the media. They kind of go back and forth between referring to this as a fentanyl crisis, a fentanyl epidemic, opioid crisis, opioid epidemic. What is the right term that should be used to describe what's going on right now around the country?
2: So, yeah, opioids get a lot of attention. Um, and the opioid epidemic is kind of the, like, buzz phrase everyone hears. But I, I refer to it as an overdose crisis um, because I think the real crisis is just that people are overdosing. Um, the rates of opioid use have not really gone up that significantly within the past few years. Uh, The rates of kind of like prescription opioid and heroin use both went up in the 90s and early 2000s, Um, but the overdoses we're seeing are the problem that are killing people.
0: As Ryan said, America is in the middle of an overdose crisis that's affecting American families and communities at large. But this crisis hasn't always been easy to identify. For parents or family members, it's often difficult to see the initial signs of substance use disorder. At the time she lost her son, Corey, Cheryl Jouer didn't understand the magnitude of the overdose crisis that was at hand.
3: Um, He was going in and out of detoxes, rehabs and all that. And again, he was doing it with his brother, so I thought, you know... I mean, they would joke when they were going into a detox, like, you know, how many girls are we going to pick up? You know what I mean? So I thought it was a, a joke, you know? And I would tell them, both of you, knock it off. Fix whatever you got to fix when you go in there and come out, you know? And um, so, uh, you know, with the jail, he did some time in jail. Um, and then he had a daughter. And he it was a really rocky relationship with this girl. And... Um, I said, while I was in Florida, I said, you know what, Corey, just come on down and uh, spend a week, get a week's vacation. And he had to jump through hoops to get um, the judge to sign off because he was on probation and he was living in a halfway house. And so uh, the day before he was to come down, I called and called and called him all day long, left messages. I wanted to make sure he had a ride to the airport. And um, I, I just knew that I knew that something was wrong. Um, his oldest brother is a police officer, so he went and did a um, wellness check. He didn't do it He's, because it was in a different town. He, sent, he called them and asked them to do a wellness check, and then he called me and told me that uh, he had, uh, Corey was dead from an overdose, and that was the hardest all I've ever had in my life especially from my son another son so um, so the day the day after we flew back because now I have to go bury my son and we went to the apartment and there were needles all over the place you know so um, did he die of um, you know he had been clean for a while but I, I wasn't living up here so I don't know Um so Sometimes I wonder did he do it intentionally because he was really sad and messed up um that I've learned more since he's been gone or um was it like his last hurrah because he was coming down to Florida and he couldn't take it on the airplane so um I could beat myself up for the rest of my life but I choose not to So um you know my son is in heaven he gives me signs all the time and and uh That's that's what happened there.
0: Back in 2011, the most commonly used drug was cocaine. That has since changed dramatically. Cheryl had no idea that this was the beginning of what's become today's opioid crisis. Yet, she knew that she didn't want Corey's death to become just another figure of data.
3: I cried a lot. I suffered in my grief a lot. Um, I'm originally from Massachusetts, so uh, we decided to move back home. Um, My son was buried up here, and I was flying up every three months, so uh, it just made sense just to come home. We just wanted to come home. So we did that, um, and I joined uh, a couple of groups on on Facebook, um, and through that, um, one night, this Uh, mom reached out to me, and she sent me a message, and she says, "Um, I know this is last minute, but tomorrow night there's six of us moms, I don't know what that even meant, um, going out to dinner and would love to have you come, and we're all from Massachusetts. So I said, okay, I'll show up. And so anyways, long story short, I showed up. Um, There were seven of us, and we pretty much closed that restaurant. We laughed, we cried, we shared stories. Um, we shared things that, you know, I thought at one point I wanted to die because the pain from my grief was so bad from losing my child, I, didn't, I wasn't going to kill myself. I just, I just didn't want to live anymore with that pain. And I found out they all felt the same way. So I was like, oh, then that's, I guess it's normal. Well, one of the things that we discussed at that table was over time, people forget our child. They forget their date of birth and their date of death. And with us, we, it's something we're never going to forget, ever. And only we knew that, and only we felt that way. So when I created the group, it was just for us seven, and I said, okay, so you need to give me your child's name, their date of birth and date of death, because in this group, We'll never forget it, and I'll always make sure uh, we remember. Well, long story short, um, it started with just us seven and then just grew and grew and grew because of the epidemic. And um, we now have a national organization, and we have 16 state chapters. We have a chapter for siblings, all from um, child loss.
0: A big part of Cheryl's work is trying to eliminate the stigma that comes with having a friend or family member struggling with substance use disorder.
3: The whole concept behind team sharing is uh, we're a grief support. And there are so many people out there walking along like a zombie like I did that for me, my goal is to reach out and have a chapter in every state. Because, um, but the stigma is still alive, like down south. You know, there's a lot of people that are in complete denial. Um, there's somebody we just recently found out who just lost their son in Massachusetts, and he won't come forward and tell anybody how he passed. Um, he, they said he died from a heart attack, which he may have, but we know it was caused from um, his use of drugs. So there's still the stigma, but there's, there's the people that are just uh, they're going to have pain. When you lose a child, and and it doesn't matter how you lose your child, when you lose a child, there's no greater pain in this world. And we all know that.
0: Why do you think that there is this stigma still, particularly in the South, towards, um, you know, losing somebody to substance use disorder?
3: Because I think people look down on you. You know, um, your child died from an overdose. Um, He must have been a bad kid. You must have raised him wrong you must have done something wrong. And that's the mentality of thinking unless it's touched them, really touched them, unless they know somebody they're just they're just going to be ignorant to it. Unless they come and say tell me about that loss. What happened? You know, and that's when we can educate them. That's when it will change things. But the ones who have been in the throes of addiction the ones who have lost their children to addiction we all know and we all get it
0: you've been in recovery for 18 years and in that span of time you know what is it what is it actually like being in recovery you know what does it entail does you know you go to meetings frequently and you've also uh, become I think you said a social worker yeah essentially yeah Yeah, Um, yeah so what has it been like in those 18 years for you since
4: I mean it's it's you know it's pretty great. I mean, it's not, it's it, It's like, it, but it, you, you just stabilize after, after a period. Like the beginning, so hard, right? The beginning, so difficult because you don't really have a frame of reference. Is there it, a lot
0: of temptations
4: at the beginning? Because yeah. you, because you don't, you don't really. And this is why it's so important that you have all these support services at the beginning. Now it, it's not at all. It's, I'm just, uh, you know. Normal run of the mill American <laughs> that happens to not drink and not use, right? It's not even like it's, it's. It's a major part of what my life and what I do and my identity, but it's not the entirety of my identity. There's so many other things that I am, right? I'm a social worker. I'm a husband to my wife. I'm a father to my son. I'm, you know, a son to my parents, right? Like I have an adult child to adult parent relationship, um, you know, and our relationship has changed significantly. They used to pay money to fly me away from them. I now pay (laughs) money to fly their grandchild to them. I mean, it's really, it's improved significantly over the the course of being in recovery, but I think the thing that's, I think the, the main thing that's so important is um, that we we can and do recover. Given proper support, we can and do recover, and this is a very common misconception because it's in every single, you know, the drama around people with substance use disorders is is in the relapse, right? So you never have like, in pop culture, movies, TV shows, whatever, like, we always realize. Like, that's all they ever show. I mean, that's the stuff that drives me crazy. They never just are like, here's a storyline. Here's a person. They had a substance use disorder. They got, it, you know, they got it under control. They entered recovery, and they're just living their life, just doing regular—and that's what it is. Like, being in recovery is, you know, owning a house, paying taxes, dropping your kid off at preschool. It's vastly less dramatic. It's, um, it's calm— Uh, There's a fair amount of vacationing and travel involved because, like, you don't have to spend so much money on drugs.
0: (laughs) Andrew and Cheryl have different but personal experiences with substance use disorder. It's easy to have images in mind of who uses and who doesn't. But through our reporting of this story, we've learned that those assumptions aren't really true. We asked Ryan what he's noticed in his years working in the emergency room.
2: The biggest thing here is that everyone uh, probably has in their mind kind of the picture of who who they think is overdosing. And that's kind of reinforced by what our society teaches us about people who use drugs and kind of like movies and TV. Um, and the people who overdose uh, and who use drugs in general are, are not some sort of like bad element of society. They're not always just like a like vagrants and uh, people who are, are choosing uh, making bad choices for lack of a a better way to say it. But it's really something that affects everyone. Um, I mean, I've seen young kids, I've seen elderly people. um, I've seen people from the best families, people from the worst families. uh, And it it is really something that affects everyone. And I think that's kind of the most surprising thing. Um, And what sticks sticks with me is just the surprise from people in the family or friends um, who just had no idea that their 65-year-old uh, grandmother had been using opioids uh, or, or their teenager had been using opioids uh, until, it, until it's too late.
0: Dr. Marino is a very vocal voice on Twitter, often debunking the many myths and misconceptions that come with opioids, particularly fentanyl. One common misconception is that fentanyl can be ingested simply by touching it.
2: Uh, and so we, we do know a lot about fentanyl. This isn't something new to us. Uh, and so people worry a lot that this is contaminating public places. It can, you can touch it. It can go through your skin. It can get into the air. Uh, and we know from experience that that isn't the case. Uh, fentanyl is very predictable, uh, and the only way to get toxic from it or to have an overdose uh, is really by injecting, snorting, um, intentionally using using drugs.
0: So I just want to clarify here because, again, this is often falsely uh, passed around that you can ingest fentanyl just by touching it, and uh, it's, you cannot, Correct.
2: For all intents and purposes, no. Okay. Um, and just casually touching fentanyl, even a, a large quantity of like fentanyl someone bought off the street, would would not absorb through the skin in any significant fashion, and would would not cause an overdose. I think for the most part, these are people who just have bad information. Um, they've heard that fentanyl is killing hundreds of thousands of Americans, um, and. They're, they're at a scene where someone had probably a significant overdose. They see some powder, it gets on them. Um, I mean, it's, it's a very scary thing, especially if you're seeing someone who either died or is on the brink of death. You're hearing that fentanyl is killing all these people. You're hearing that it's super potent. There's a lot of... Um, social, uh, kind of societal belief around fentanyl. And I think those kind of contribute to probably more like a panic attack um, or something kind of similar to the placebo effect, which there there is actually a negative placebo effect called the nocebo effect, where if you believe something is going to be so detrimental to you, you can actually have symptoms as well. It's never been described that any of these people have ever tested positive for fentanyl um, or have had actual symptoms of opioid over an actual opioid overdose.
0: what kind of consequences do these myths and misconceptions have as a result on people who are actually addicted to fentanyl well
2: I think probably the two biggest consequences um, first of all I mean these myths kind of snowball uh, and give give credence to themselves where this becomes kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you've heard a hundred stories of people just dropping down from being in the same room as fentanyl um, then it's gonna make you think if you're in the same room as fentanyl, you're gonna drop down. Um, but in terms of for people who use drugs, these are very harmful because people are very wary to go respond to an overdose. Um, people will not wanna touch someone who has overdosed. It, it really contributes to kind of the stigma that these people face um, and how they're they're treated very terribly. But even more, more importantly now, uh, it's leading to people not getting resuscitated and people are probably dying. Um, and I've seen, seen even healthcare workers who have been too scared uh, or n- not wanting to respond to an overdose in the appropriate way because, because of these myths.
0: I tried to put myself in Ryan's shoes here for a minute. What's it like to have these people, countless patients coming in and needing to be saved from an overdose? What does a doctor say to them after such a dramatic event? We asked him what the right way to approach this is.
2: Yeah, so everyone responds to an overdose differently. And I think one of the things that I've seen a lot um, throughout my career is just a lot of times people want to kind of use it as like a teaching moment and kind of tell someone, look, like you almost died. Um, and I do think that it is it is kind of a moment to try to, try to talk to someone. Um, but you have to go about it in a careful way and telling someone that uh, – like their family's mad at them or this was, they made a big mistake is really not the way um, to communicate with someone who's in a very vulnerable position. Um, it is a great opportunity to kind of try to engage someone, see if they want to get plugged into recovery for if it's opioids or whatever other uh, drugs they're using. Um, and I think a lot of times this is not offered and that's kind of another way that the system, I would say, has dropped the ball on this issue is we have very good uh, medicines and other options for getting people off of opioids and treating addiction. Um, and these have been around for decades uh, and they're, they're just not available. Um, and probably the best example of this is buprenorphine, which is a great medicine for treating opioid addiction um, like long-term uh, and it has great success rates, has been well studied. Um, there's a, a very large body of evidence supporting its use is a federally restricted medication um, and approximately only 5% of eligible prescribers, which is doctors, nurse practitioners, physician assistants um, across the country, are actually able to prescribe this medication just because the federal government has restricted its use because it, it's associated with addiction and drug use. Um, and we kind of have a long history of bad laws uh, that, that make treatment for those kind of people hard, hard to access or just not available.
0: You know, you you've talked a lot about stigmas here. Sure. What is the one that bothers you the most?
4: I mean, the one that bothers the, actually the whole the whole conversation around stigma bothers me the most about stigma, right? Because stigma is we have a serious problem with stigma, but what we really have a problem with is we have a problem with what well, we have it we have an empathy gap. Right. Like that's what we have in our country. Like the fact that there's people that are like, you should lock them up. You should, um, you know, like, well, it's their choice. Like if they die, like that's on them. That that lack of empathy is the most detrimental component to our society. Like
0: this- Andrew told us a story of someone who had a different background than his and the obstacles they overcame to get the care they needed.
4: There's this kid, Reno Harmon out of Philadelphia, experienced I mean, just horrific trauma. He's like, you know, 12 years old, watches his 11-year-old best friend get shot through the throat, bleed out, and die in front of him, um, you know, on a basketball court. He, you know, is from this socioeconomically disadvantaged minority population, and You know, the whole deck is stacked against him. Um, At 15, when I started getting into trouble, like my parents were coming in and cleaning it up. At 15, when he got in trouble, they put him in adult prison as a 15-year-old. Adult prison. They offered him... 20 years in prison as a 15 year old and thank God his mom is amazing she just like marched in there and was like 20 years is not (laughs) you know that's not a plea deal for a 15 year old what are you guys talking about and you know he's from this like very rough area very rough background you know rampant Like, gun violence all over who gets to sell drugs where to whom. But he gets diverted over to this recovery high school. You know, now he's in recovery. Um, You know, he came out and spoke at the Mobilized Recovery event in Nevada. Um, Graduated high school early. He's in, uh, you know, college and, you know, in a trade program. He went out and did this story on, um, you know, for YouTube. And he's amazing. He's amazing. And his life has fundamentally changed simply because he had access to care.
0: We've heard of, you know, the calls to decriminalize drugs. And then we've also heard people say these people should just be sent to prison. They're taking drugs. Um, They know what they're doing. Where is the middle ground for helping people with addiction? You know, just based on your experiences, are there any other approaches that you would say could potentially work?
4: Well, so that's so this is the big problem. Right. So this is, you know, like there's a there's a big push on harm reduction right now. Right. Which is, first of all, like it's a it's a very broad term. Right, I mean, every, I mean, technically, and I'm obviously not a fan of it as a person in recovery and as a person who's formerly incarcerated. Um, but jail is harm reduction from a societal standpoint. That's why people want us sent to jail. Um, I don't think it's an effective solution. There's actually a lot of research to support the fact that it's not an effective solution. The bottom line is, I mean, you should, anyone should want people to get help. Uh, even if they don't care about the people at all, right? Even if you're just a soulless monster and you don't care about your fellow Americans at all, you should still want them to get help because if we go to jail and are not treated during the course of our experience there, at some point we're coming out, right? Right? And if I'm either going to come out with a treated or untreated substance use disorder. And then the other thing is it's just super expensive. I mean, you know, you are spending like $75,000 per person per year to incarcerate. And some states are astronaut. I mean, you guys just had, what, $330,000 per year to incarcerate an adult. I mean, in, in New York, that's—we could support someone for 20 years, right, with very low—you know, with a very expensive, like, front-end intensive treatment. And nobody needs 20 years of support. You know, people need a five-year-long continuum of care. And that's what— people do that have resources, right? You don't have all these celebrities coming out and being like, just celebrated 20 years or 25 years in recovery. It's the cornerstone of my entire career. My whole life is built on it. Like, this is why I'm an A-list musician or whatever. It's because I made this fundamental change in my life. And it's like, I wonder if they have something that other people don't have. And it turns out, yes, they do. And it's a lot of money. So that's that's what. Is making the difference Right And it's the same For people like me It's the same For people like my wife That had The deck stacked In their favor That had access To all these systems So when we talk about Harm reduction in the US If you know Harm reduction in the U.S. needs a lot more funding, right? So um, safe injection sites is a, is, a, is a big one right now that's like um, – so, I mean, first of all, leaving aside the fact that safe injection sites should be operated out of hospitals by nurses and doctors, not like a bunch of volunteers in a warehouse with some donated Narcan – uh, you know, just from a safety standpoint, it, it's about the wraparound services, right? So in other countries, in Canada and uh, Switzerland, uh, places like that, you go to somewhere that that is providing this service and every single day they're like, do you need help? Like, we'll get you help right now. Let's take a, you know, I know you're just trying to get high, but let's talk about how wildly dysfunctional your life is right now and how we can help you, Right. In the U.S., we're not providing any of those wraparound services. And harm reduction without wraparound services is just hospice care for the poor. I mean, and that's really what we're talking about rolling out at scale here. So, I mean, just think about it rationally for a second. If you're a um, homeless 16-year-old Girl who's addicted to heroin and you're prostituting yourself to support your substance use disorder because you're 16, you dropped out of high school, you don't have a lot of marketable skills and you go to um, something like this, that's great that they're less likely to overdose um, or, or they're... I mean, they're less likely to overdose if they're using, like, fentanyl testing strips and things like that. But if if they overdose, you know, there's there's someone there that is going to provide reversal medication um, so that it's not a fatal overdose. So they're less likely to die. But you haven't addressed any of the underlying problems. They're still homeless. They're still prostituting themselves. You still have to commit crimes to get money to buy drugs. And this is why it's so important that— if we're gonna do harm reduction in this country, which I'm for, I support harm reduction, we need to pump a lot of resources in it. Like, are we getting you access to housing? Are we getting you access to education? What are we doing to help you? Because that, that child should have the option of saying, I need help and we should get them into detox where they will immediately not be homeless and they will immediately not be prostituting themselves. Like that night, those issues are resolved.
0: There's still a lot of work to be done. And if there's anything this story has shown is that there's no one clear cause or one clear solution to this American overdose crisis. At the end of the day, this crisis is about people. It's easy to begin thinking of these huge numbers and problems as insurmountable and difficult to solve. But every number lost was actually a person. I asked Cheryl where her family is at now nine years after Corey's passing. So you said that your oldest son is a police officer. Mm -hmm. And then what about your other son?
3: So my other son, um, he used to do drugs with Corey. And after Corey passed, he did him worse for a couple of years. I thought I was going to lose him. Um, And then he got into recovery. He went to Teen Challenge. Stayed there a couple of years and then they hired him and he worked there a couple of years and then he relapsed. So right now that's where he's at. And um, it's not good, but that's where he's at. A lot of families I have come to know um, have lost two children um, or have one that's in active addiction. Um, we have a mom who lost five. In our group in Massachusetts, five children. So um, it knows no boundaries.
0: Illegal Tender is made by Yahoo Finance at our studios in New York City. This episode was written and hosted by me, Adriana Belmonte. Illegal Tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Sugg. Thank you to Ben Westoff, Ryan Marino, Andrew Berkey, and Cheryl Jouer for contributing to this story. Westoff's book, Fentanyl Inc., How Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the Opioid Epidemic, is available now from Grove Atlantic. If you enjoyed this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five star rating and review it for the show. Until next time, thank you for listening to A Legal Tender.